Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Bringing everything up here for me. So, we're, yeah, we're in Luke chapter 21. get my stuff organized here so a few weeks ago we celebrated the 21st anniversary of there's a little bit of feedback I think the 21st anniversary of 9-11 that day when terrorists came crashing into the two towers and they toppled with all the billowing smoke and some of you may remember where you were when you first saw that I was at home, Aiden was about four or five years old, Zachary was about two. I remember it coming on the screen, and first I thought it was a prop, I thought it was like a fake. And then when I realized that it was actually happening, all those thoughts came flooding into my heart. There were thoughts of horror, thoughts of fear, thoughts of anger. It, it still burned into our national psyche the images of the two towers going down, and then just to see people jumping out of the windows for their lives. 3,000 people who died in 9-11. There's nothing quite like it in modern history that has impacted a nation on a national scale. 9-11. There's something very troubling about seeing that. Some of you may remember the blockbuster movie from the 1990s with Will Smith called Independence Day. You remember that movie? Uh, that movie's a science fiction movie, but <clears throat> the first time I saw it, I was pretty startled because if you remember that scene where the spacecraft hovers over the White House and then the laser beam comes down, and I, I thought, like, this is crazy for a movie. The White House blows up. The first time I think ever in a movie, the White House blows up, and then the helicopter blades come reeling into the screen almost as if it's in 3D. And so that sent chills down my spine, even though it was fiction, to see the White House blow up. So whether it's a fictional movie where the White House blows up with alien spacecraft or literally where terrorists fly into the two towers, there's something deeply unsettling, there's something unnerving, there's something angering about seeing those national symbols come crashing down. Now, why do I bring these things up? I want you to think about the Israelites living in Jerusalem in the year A.D. 70. The Roman general Titus invades the city and burns it to the ground. The temple the national symbol of Israel, the powerful and glorious structure that represented not only their national identity, but the presence of Almighty God, <coughs> excuse me, goes down in flames. I'm going to have to get some water, guys. So General Titus also created a perimeter around the city where nobody could get out. <coughs> they were trapped in the city 
And it was estimated that over a million Jews died that day because they could not get out of the city when it burned down. Now, the destruction of Jerusalem and the burning down of the temple in A.D. 70 would be equivalent to our 9-11, but on a greater scale. Because it wasn't just the two towers, it was the entire city, the temple, and over a million people who died in that tragedy. So I want us to remind you of what, what we explored last week. Jesus is in the temple. He's giving his last public discourse and he's telling the apostles and his audience, thank you. Colder, huh? <laughs> Thanks, Cindy. So he was predicting the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 and the horrific events that would lead up to that in the nation of Israel. And so if you remember from last week, I warned us about, and this is what Jesus warned us about, two dangerous threats facing the church. What are these two dangerous threats? And they're always going to be happening in the life of a church and life of Christians. One is there's an internal threat of false teaching. And so because of that, we need to not be deceived when false teachers come in. That's the internal threat. The external threat is persecution. It comes from outside. We need to be ready to endure suffering and to give a bold testimony for Christ. And so as we move through this passage in Luke, Jesus continues this discussion of the fall of Jerusalem, but he's going to expand it out to that final day, the day of the Lord, his second coming. So let's read together Luke chapter 21, right on the heels of where we were last week. Let's start in verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth in wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads. Because your redemption is drawing near. This section has two distinct parts. The first is related to the actual destruction of Jerusalem. You see that in verses 20 through 24. The second part is the second coming of Christ. We see that in verses 25 to 28. So I want us to explore these two truths this morning as we explore these two sections. And so here's the first thing I want us to understand that we see here. God gives time to repent before he brings judgment. God gives time to repent before he brings judgment. 
Jesus describes to his audience the events that were to happen in A.D. 70. Emperor Vespasian will send General Titus in to destroy Jerusalem. And it literally happened. But I want you to notice the words that Jesus used to describe this event. In verse 20, he calls it a desolation. A desolation. The destruction of Jerusalem was foretold by the prophets in the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament. For example, Amos 5, 18 through 20. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. And if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, a serpent bit him. It is not a day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it. This is a day of destruction, of darkness for Israel. Notice in verse 22, he calls it a day of vengeance. A day of vengeance. Micah 3, 12. Therefore, how, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Distress, vengeance, Verse 22 also calls it a day of wrath. A day of desolation, a day of vengeance, and a day of wrath. And we need to understand something about the destruction of Jerusalem. This is not some simple act of fate that just kind of happened out of nowhere. No, this is God's planned judgment on Israel as a direct result of their rejecting their Messiah. And God does that often. In the Old Testament, how many times do you see God bringing in foreign armies to invade and take over Israel as an act of judgment? God does that often, and here's what he's doing here. J.C. Ryle said it this way. I like the way he said it. He said, the anger of God, like a pent-up river, had been silently accumulating for ages. The fearful tribulation which attended the siege of Jerusalem would only be the outburst of a thunderstorm which had been gradually gathering since the Old Testament days. It's as if this thunderstorm, these clouds are billowing, and all of a sudden on A.D. 70, God breaks forth the heavens and brings down judgment on Jerusalem. It's a day of wrath. Now, I have a very interesting question that I've been asking as I've looked at this. Why did God wait till A.D. 70 to do this? Why didn't he do it right after Jesus ascended back up to heaven? Why wait almost 37 years to do it? Why such a long period of time between the ascension of Christ back up to heaven to A.D. 70? So here's what I believe the answer is. Obviously, if it's God's sovereign timetable, that's always the answer for everything, but I believe the answer is this. I think God was patient with Israel. He was giving the Jewish people an opportunity to repent and believe in their risen Messiah. And how did he do this? He did this through the preaching ministry of Jewish men, the apostles, Peter, John, and especially Paul. The early church started in Israel, in Jerusalem. Peter and Paul were both Israelites. So God was using the early church, the Jewish early church, to bring the message of the gospel to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And God is being patient and kind with his people up until a point. For the most part, when you look at the book of Acts and you look at history, up to that point, A.D. 70, 
most Jewish people were hardened against the gospel. Not many Jewish people came to faith. It seems like the Gentiles were coming to faith in droves. The Jewish people had become calloused, hardened, and the Gentiles were coming to faith in great numbers. Paul even says this when he's before the authorities and he's giving his testimony. In Acts 28, 26 to 28, Paul's recounting what the Lord said to him on the road to Damascus. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they've closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. The Jewish people had gotten hardened. They plugged up their ears. They did not want to accept their Messiah. And so Paul says, I'm going to the Gentiles. Romans 11:25. lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There was this hardening on the nation of Israel. And God was giving them time to repent and receive their Messiah. But then time was up. Think about how God has always been patient in bringing judgment. When you go back to the Old Testament, how many years did it take Noah to build the ark? 120 years. He gave 120 years in time for people to repent before he brought the flood. Remember what God said to Abraham before he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? Can you find at least just 10, 10 righteous people? And there weren't. And then Nineveh, when Jonah entered Nineveh, what did God give him as the message? 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. God gave them 40 days. Very rarely does God come in guns blazing and bring immediate judgment. He almost always gives time to repent. He gives time for the message to go out. And his kindness is meant to lead to repentance. That's what Romans 2 says. Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God was being kind to Israel. God was extending his hand to the people to receive the risen Messiah. But they were hardened against Jesus. They rejected Jesus. And so God's patience came to an end, and on his sovereign timetable, he said, A.D. 70 is an act of judgment on my people. I'm destroying the city. I'm destroying the temple. And the destruction of Jerusalem is a prototype of future judgment. It's a picture of future in times judgment. Charles Spurgeon said this, the destruction of Jerusalem was, so to speak, the uprolling of the curtain on the great drama of the world's doom. That beautiful city was the very crown of the entire earth because God had dwelt there. It may be compared to the diamond in a ring, the jewel whose setting was the whole world. And when that jewel was destroyed and God did, as it were, grind it to powder, it was a warning that the ring itself would be, by and by, crushed and consumed. God crushed the city to pieces. And this is a picture of future judgment. What happened in AD 70 is a picture of future judgment. So there is a day of the Lord coming. It's called the day of the Lord. That final day. 
the day of judgment. It is a day of wrath. It is a day of distress. It is a day of desolation for the unbeliever. Joel 1.15, alas, for that day, for the day of the Lord is near, and destruction from the Almighty it comes. 1 Thessalonians 5. 2 through 3. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a woman, and they will not escape. They will not escape the day of the Lord. Peter says it this way in 2 Peter 3.10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on you. It remains on you. So here's the point that Jesus is making in that passage. If you do not trust in Jesus Christ, God's wrath is already on you. The only way to escape the wrath of God is by trusting in Christ as your Savior. What do we see happening in verse 21? What happens when wrath and desolation and destruction come on the city in verse 21? Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. They were running for the hills. They were escaping the city. Now, historically in God's providence, something happened. God did something miraculous in the lives of the Christians in Jerusalem. Three years before Titus ransacked the city, another general named Gallius tried to destroy Jerusalem, and he failed. And the Christians that were in the city of Jerusalem remembered Jesus' words. And they said, we better get ready because it looks like the signs of the times are happening. So all the Christians in Jerusalem packed up their belongings and they fled outside the city to a place called Pella. It was a mountain refuge. And so they camped out there for three years and when Titus came and ransacked the city, all the Christians providentially were able to escape and not be killed because they remember the words of their saviors. So they fled. The only way to escape the day of the Lord is for you to do the same thing. But you don't flee to the hills. You flee to Christ. You run from your sin and you run to the Savior. You come to Christ in salvation. You run into the arms of Jesus. That's how you escape. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it safe. You run into Jesus and you're safe. How do you escape the wrath to come? How do you escape that final day? You run into the arms of Jesus by faith. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. We'll be delivered from the wrath to come only through Jesus. So Jesus addresses what will happen historically in time, A.D. 70, when Titus marches in and destroys Jerusalem as an act of judgment upon the nation for their rejection of their Messiah. 
But the second thing that I want us to look at this morning is Jesus actually shifts gears to the return of Christ, his actual return. And here's what I want us to understand. The return of Christ should cause us great joy, not great fear. Some people fear the coming of Christ. As believers, we should be joyful at the coming of Christ. Now, I want to just clarify some language here because when the Bible speaks of the second coming of Christ and the day of the Lord, to me, it's the same exact event told from two different vantage points. The second coming is from the perspective of us as believers, it's joyful. The day of the Lord is the same event, but from the perspective of unbelievers, it's a day of judgment. So when Christ comes back, salvation for Christians, judgment for unbelievers. It's the second coming, it's the day of the Lord. And so in verses 23 through 26, we see that there will be signs in the heavens, sun, moon, and stars. There'll be roaring in the seas. And we notice that it's worldwide. He's expanding out beyond just A.D. 70 because notice what he says there. In verse 25, there will be signs in sun, moon, and stars. And on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. So this is, this is the end times here. This is no longer A.D. 70, Jerusalem. Jesus is now talking about the end worldwide. And these cataclysmic events that are going to happen, the shaking of the planets, the sun, moon, stars, this again was prophesied in the Old Testament. Joel 2, 30-31, And I will show you wonders in the heavens, and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So before the day of the Lord comes, before the second coming, there's going to be cataclysmic events happening in the sun, moon, and stars and in the oceans. And you see it in Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountain and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? The unbelievers are wanting the rocks to kill them first so they don't have to face the wrath of Christ in judgment when this universal blackout the way i like to call it happens i want you to think about the brilliance of verse 27 you have a universal blackout the sun moon and stars and all the heavenly beings stop shining it's darkness across the earth what does verse 27 say and then and then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. I'm reminded of a sermon I preached back in 2008 in our old building. Some of you remember that. I was preaching from Mark chapter 13, which is the same exact passage of what we're preaching here in Luke. And we're in the, the building. It's in the middle of the summertime in the, 
and the air conditioning is being cranked up, and, and I'm preaching, and I get to that point where it says the moon turned black, and the sun stopped shining, and it got totally black. And you guys remember what happened there? The lights went out. Right on cue. Literally, the lights went out in our sanctuary. It was dark, and I'm, think, I'm thinking to myself, how am I going to finish this sermon? So somebody brings up a flashlight, and I finished the sermon with the flashlight. And I can tell you, it was the most calm, eerily silent sermon I think I've ever preached. No babies crying. We're all, you're all sitting there in the dark. And I'm preaching about the return of Christ. And I think, God scripted that really well. People are thinking, did Sean fake it? Did he have the lights turn out exactly at that time? No, it was the power just went out because we were pulling so much electricity for the, for the air conditioning. But notice verse 27, packs a punch. When you have this universal blackout, what, what happens next? And then well, we see some wondrous truths about the return of Christ. Jesus will return visibly. He will return visibly. Every eye will see him. Revelation 1-7, behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Jesus will return universally. All over the world, people will see him. And every knee will bow when Jesus comes back. Have you thought about that? Every knee will bow. Those who are believers, we will bow with joy. Unbelievers are still going to bow, but they're going to bow in hatred. They're not going to want to bow, but they will bow when they see Jesus come back. Romans 14, 11, and 12. It's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess, so that each of us will give an account of himself to God. So Jesus will return visibly. He'll return university, but he'll return majestically. Jesus will return majestically. It says here he's crowned in power. Coming in the clouds with power. The power of a, of a king. Notice what will happen when Jesus comes back the way Paul describes it in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. It will be a majestic return. Visible, universal, majestic. And then this passage says, Jesus will return gloriously in great power and glory. In other words, the entire universe is in darkness, and when Christ comes back, he shines forth the full brilliance of God in all of his majesty and his glory as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. How does Revelation describe this return of Christ? Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he's called is the word of God. 
and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp, sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Visibly, universally, majestically, gloriously, Jesus will return. This should instill great fear and urgency in those who have not trusted Christ for salvation. But for those of us who have trusted Christ for salvation, this should instill great joy and great confidence and great hope. Notice what Jesus tells us to do when this happens. When you see this happen, notice what he says there in verse 28. When these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads. Lift up your heads. Be confident. Be expectant. Often in the Psalms, we see the image of God being the lifter of our heads. When you go back and read the Psalms, when a, when a psalmist was discouraged, when a psalmist was despondent or depressed, he, the Lord came and was the lifter of his heads. The, the Lord came and lifted his head. So when you're down and when you're depressed by all these earthly pressure, pressures, Jesus says, lift up your head. Look to the skies. Look above. Psalm 3.3. 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. Jesus, you lift my head. This was read earlier during our time of confession, Colossians 3. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Keep your mind fixed on Christ. Lift up your head to the things of the glory of God. Lift up your heads. Look for the appearing of our Christ. Keep your mind fixed on things above. And what reason does Jesus give for us to be so confident and hopeful and joyful at his return? What does he say there at the end of verse 28? Because your redemption is drawing near. To redeem, to ransom it means to purchase out of slavery. Think about the Exodus. When the Israelites were in Exodus, they were in physical bondage in Egypt. And the Lord rescued them out of physical bondage by means of the blood of the lamb on the doorpost that the Israelites were able to be freed, rescued. And so what it means spiritually for us is that Jesus rescues us from the bondage of sin and Satan and the slavery of guilt and shame. He rescues us out of that. And so Jesus fully accomplished that when he died on the cross. Romans 3, 23 through 25, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that purchasing, that buying in his blood that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have a redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We have redemption. 
Hebrews 9.12, He entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but, mean, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So when Jesus died on the cross, He cried out, It is finished. Paid in full. He bought our redemption. Everything required for us to be saved, Jesus purchased for us on the cross. So He died for us. He redeemed us. But when He comes back, we will have ultimate redemption. The redemption of our bodies. The glorified, resurrected bodies to live forever in the new heavens, in the new earth. Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 8. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly. Why are we groaning inwardly? What are we waiting for? We wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. When Christ comes back, that final redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we're saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For hope, for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We wait with joy. We long for this. We, we wait for the ultimate redemption of our bodies. Yes, Jesus redeemed us from our sins on the cross, but we live in frail, earthly, sick, disease-ridden bodies. And when Jesus comes back, he's going to redeem our bodies and we'll find our ultimate salvation to live forever with him. And so the return of Christ should instill two responses. For the unbeliever who has rejected Christ, it's a day of vengeance, it's a day of wrath, it's a day of fear. But for the believer who has trusted Christ, it's a day of joy and redemption and glory. After church last week, my wife Dawn asked me a good question I've been thinking about all week. She said, how can you be so confident in your faith to stand and give testimony to the Lord, and, and you're, you're leading the church to, to be sitting under persecution and to, to be a strong voice. And, and, and Sean, how, why? How, how do you do that? What is it in you? And I've thought about that question, and it boils down to a few things for me. First, I believe this is absolutely true. I do believe it. It's absolutely true. I cannot stand up here and preach to you what I don't personally believe myself. So I will die on this word because I believe it is absolutely true. That's one reason. Second reason, I believe in the absolute sovereignty of God over all things. I believe that whatever happens, he ordained it to happen that way. I cannot fight it. I cannot go against it. I cannot resist it. I simply must submit to whatever God ordains. And he's faithful, and he's absolutely sovereign, and he is the king, and I trust him absolutely. But here's the most important. I believe that Jesus alone is worth it. 
He's worth it. It's because of my love and devotion for Jesus. I know he loves me, and I love him. And I really believe this stuff. It's not just pie-in-the-sky academics or theology. It's in my heart. It's in my soul. So you need to understand something about your pastor. So when my wife asks me these questions and I think about it, I want to give an answer not only to her but to you. I believe in the absolute authority of God's Word. I believe in the absolute authority of God's sovereignty. And I love Jesus. And He's worth it. And I would give my all for Him. So as we wait His return, this great return where he will come in power and glory and shatter the darkness of the sky with his brightness. Don't be afraid of what's happening around us. The world can be a scary place. Christian, do not be afraid. Lift up your heads. Be confident. Be joyful. Hold fast to the truth of the Bible. Trust in God's sovereignty. Let's glory in our future. Let's glory in our redemption. Our king is soon coming back. And when our king comes back, he's going to bring history to a close. He's going to right all the wrongs. He's going to come and conquer on a white horse. There's going to be the trumpet call of God. He's going to come back in power and glory. And what's he going to do as our great sovereign? He's going to gather us all together. He's going to give us brand new resurrected bodies. He's going to usher us into his presence in heaven. And there we will live forever with him in glory. This is the blessed hope of all believers, the return of our Savior. So dear brothers and sisters, let's not be fearful. There's a lot of things to be fearful in this world. Instead, let us be joyful. Let's be confident. Let's leave this place lifting our head because we serve a sovereign Savior, a glorious King who's coming back in power and glory. Are you ready for that day? I hope you are. Let's pray. In heaven, we are so thankful that you are a glorious, great, sovereign God. Jesus, we are thankful that you are returning again in power and majesty. can't conceive of what that day will be like when your glory shatters the darkness of the universe and we get to finally see you face to face. Lord, we long for this. We wait for this. It's our joy it's our confidence. Lord, I can't help but thinking there may be people that walked into this room today that are just weighed down by the things of this world. There may be some financial trouble. There may be some relational issues. There may be some things at work. Maybe a big decision. Maybe just things they saw on the news. Just there's worry. There's fear. Lord, help us to be a people that are the lifters of our heads that we keep our eyes on things above, that we're ready. Jesus, we long for your return. 
as your scripture says, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. We wait for you, Jesus. Would you be our joy and our hope this week? And we ask this in your name, Jesus, for your glory. Amen.